Thanks for joining us. I'm Joshua Johnson sitting in for Diane Rehm. Congressional leaders reach a deal to avoid a government shutdown. Donald Trump loses ground with female voters in toss-up states after Monday night's presidential debate. And Congress hands President Obama his first veto override to pass a 9-11 victims bill. We look forward to hearing your take on this week's domestic news in this hour of the Friday News Roundup. Joining us for the conversation, Naftali Ben-David of The Wall Street Journal, Cheryl Gay-Stolberg of The New York Times, and Josh Kraushaar of National Journal. Naftali, Cheryl, Josh, welcome to the program. Thank you. We'd also love to hear from you listening right now, you on this week's top domestic stories. So call us. The number is 800-433-8850. That's 800-433-8850. Email us, drshow at wamu.org. Find us on Facebook or tweet us. We are at DR Show. And you can watch our live video stream of this hour online at drshow.org. I got all dressed up just for the occasion. Let's start off by talking about something different in Congress this week, bipartisanship. Congress actually agreed on a bill that they decided deserved to live. And, Josh, it was a very unique experience for President Obama. What happened? Yeah, well, we actually don't have the threat of of a government shutdown and and the funding for Zika and a lot of other of the administration's domestic priorities were passed in a compromise with with House and Senate Republicans. And, you know, the the politics of compromise may seem distant when you pay attention to the the presidential election. But we've seen both in the primary elections where we haven't seen members of Congress uh, challenged uh, from the right or from the left in, in, in as many primaries as we have in recent years. And we've actually seen cooperation on Capitol Hill, which is a big contrast from uh, elections past. So, you know, as 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 contentious as this presidential campaign has been, when you look at what's going on on Capitol Hill and when you look at what's happening kind of in the states down ballot, uh, there's some signs that we may actually be be seeing some some bipartisanship, some more compromise in the future. Dig a little deeper into the details of the funding bill, this this continuing resolution to prevent the government from shutting down at least for now. They'll have to revisit it, but what was it that allowed Congress to let this bill pass? Well, I mean, Republicans essentially were willing to kind of compromise, allow for some some compromise on the Zika funding and, and, and other uh, domestic measures. But this was this was sort of a punt, like a kick down, down, down the road where, you know, they didn't want to have a politically contentious battle over an issue that's dogged Republicans uh, in, in, in the wake of a presidential election and some key Senate races. Yeah, Naftali Ben-David, this seems to have become the way that Congress runs these days, just to kind of, as Josh said, just kind of kick in the can down the road, and then we'll fix it when we absolutely positively have to fix it. It is. It's a routine that we've seen happen over and over again now, where the moment approaches where there's almost going to be a government shutdown, and usually right before that shutdown occurs, they come to some kind of a last-minute agreement. The thing that really struck me about this is how little the dynamic has changed since the days of John Boehner. You know, there was this thought that maybe when he stepped down, this dynamic where a group of conservative Republicans holds up a bill that the Republican leadership wants. So they have to negotiate with Democrats. Maybe that would come to an end. But instead, this is the exact same dynamic we've seen in the past. The Democrats wanted funding for Flint and other cities that are suffering from contaminated water. They were in the driver's seat, in part because it's just one of these laws of politics that when the government shuts down, 
people blame the Republicans. You know, and also members of Congress wanted to get home. The last thing they want is to be stuck in Washington looking ineffective while their challengers are vigorously campaigning in their home district. So it allows them to get on with the work that this year, this time this year, they absolutely have to be doing. They do. And in two months, they'll be back here. You know, this bill only funds the government through December 9th. So all they've done is guarantee that during a lame duck session, they'll be back here having the same arguments, taking the same votes. Cheryl Gay Stahlberg, what do you make of all this? Well, I was going to say this may have been compromised, but this was compromise sort of at the barrel of a gun, right? And the gun of the November elections, just like Naftali said, these lawmakers can't go home empty-handed and with a government shutdown. And frankly, this is like Groundhog Day. Really, we are seeing this over and over and over again in Congress. The most basic function of Congress is to fund the government. It's the only job they absolutely have to do. And every time they have to do it, it's at the last minute. I always say it's like teenagers. They do it often in the middle of the night with a pizza party. I think this time they probably got it done during the day, but only at the very last minute with the clock ticking and the government and the threat of a shutdown hanging over their heads. We saw what happened a few years back when the government shut down and Republicans um, forced a government shutdown over funding of Obamacare, the president's health care program. Um, they insisted they were not going to fund the government unless Obamacare was defunded. The government was shut down. It accrued very poorly to Republicans uh, around election time. They were punished for it. So um, I suppose they they learned their lesson. But I wouldn't necessarily call this a happy or easy Compromise. So really just the threat of the election kind of forced everything onto a unique timetable. Right. Like better do your job or guess what? You might get fired. There was another bit of bipartisanship that was super strong, overwhelming this override of a presidential veto. President Obama has never had this happen before. Uh, Josh, what was it about this bill, this 9-11 victims bill that brought basically all of Congress together. Right. Well, any time you invoke 9-11 families and, and, and giving them the ability to sue, uh, it, it really can bring both Republicans and Democrats together. Only Harry Reid was, was the lone Senate vote uh, with the president when, when it came to, to, to that initial vote. But, you know, the administration was very uh, steadfast in, in its, its opposition to the bill. And you're now suing Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, the House Speaker, the Senate majority leader, starting to backtrack and saying that they may offer alternative legislation to deal with some of the concerns that the, the, the White House uh, has. But, you know, national security is a very potent issue uh, politically on Capitol Hill in the presidential race. And when you invoke 9-11 families into the equation, it's hard to, I mean, the fact that the president has a pretty uh, tenuous relationship with, with even some of the members of his own party on Capitol Hill. Uh, it, 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 they didn't do probably enough legwork that they needed to do to really persuade them that this was an important vote. And, and ultimately, it, it's gotten the, the White House in quite a bit of conflict with its uh, Congressional Hill, uh, Capitol Hill allies. Yeah, this was a bill that would allow the families of 9-11 victims to sue Saudi Arabia for any role they allege that the nation may have had in this attack. But Naftali, it was not long after the bill passed that a number of members of Congress are like, well, we may need to reread this. We may not have thought it all the way through. We might need to fix some of this. What are some of the things that they might need to go back or are considering going back and amending? 
Well, technically, this bill, this bill allows American citizens to sue any country that's found to be responsible for an act of terrorism. But you're right, it was pushed by families of 9-11 victims who are interested in suing Saudi Arabia, which they believe to be partially responsible for the attacks. But the concern is, and the White House has been fairly explicit about this, as have former officials of both parties, that this would allow America and Americans to be sued in other countries. It sets a precedent. And it's striking to me, it was hardly an example or a profile of congressional courage, if that's not an oxymoron to begin with. I mean, it was the second that they overrode this decisively, that they were out there talking about unintended consequences, unforeseen consequences. Really, we've got to come back and take another look at this. I mean, it seems like the plan, to the extent that there is one, is that so they pass this thing overwhelmingly, override the veto right before an election, go home, get reelected, and then in the lame duck session, they come back and narrow it significantly. And so they make it perhaps a little bit harder to, to sue countries in court. Uh, but the idea of overwhelmingly overriding a veto and then within hours talking about the problems with the bill and reconsidering it. I mean, even in Washington, that's something you don't see very often. And Cheryl, this seemed to arouse the president's concern, if you read the veto letter, that this bill could make the whole war on terror in some ways harder to prosecute. Right. It kind of disjoints the process. Right. So let's think about who is trying to appeal to what audience. Congress is trying to appeal to the voters back home who elect them. And anytime you're seeming to go against 9-11 families in an election year, that's not, not something that members of Congress want to do. So thus, they approve this bill. But the president is thinking about our standing in the world and the safety and security of American soldiers overseas. Saudi Arabia is a close ally of the United States. There's fear that American soldiers could be retaliated against by other nations because of a bill that opens up um, questions of sovereign immunity. So the president has been very, very concerned about this and trying to articulate that concern to members of Congress who, as we saw, uh, didn't listen and handed him the very first override of his entire presidency. Speaking of President Obama's concerns, before we get to our first break, there was uh, a conversation this week, a town hall that was on CNN uh, regarding the, the, our service members and, and defense in this country. He was asked why he refuses to use the term radical Islamic terrorism, which is a term that Republican candidate Donald Trump has used quite a bit on the campaign trail. The president basically said he didn't use the term because he did not want to create a false equivalency between Islam and terror. If you had a, an organization that was going around killing and blowing people up and said, we're <coughs> on the vanguard of Christianity... Well, I'm not, as a Christian, I'm not going to let them claim my religion and say you're killing for Christ. I would, I would say that's ridiculous. That's not what my religion stands for. Call these folks what they are, which is killers and terrorists. Josh Kraushar, what do you make of that, briefly? Well, look, this is something that the president has said for quite some time, so it's nothing new coming from the White House. But, look, if Donald Trump wins this election, as unlikely as it may seem, the resistance from the White House to call terrorism, terrorism is going to be one reason why. And you look at the, the polls that came out uh, in the last week, the national polling, the national security in the wake of the New Jersey and New York uh, bombings spiked up eight, nine points as a top issue with voters. And Donald Trump is expanding his margins. He, he was already leading among voters who are most concerned about terrorism. His margins are, are growing even, even more significantly in the wake of those terrorist attacks. And, you know, you look at the Orlando, uh, the, the, the terrorist attack in Orlando, where the president... Uh, 
FBI redacted some some of the transcript, didn't want to mention ISIS in, in, in the transcript and later backtracked. It, it's endemic of a real concern that a lot of voters have, a lot of national security-minded voters have. We're going to continue that concern on the other side of the break. We're up against the break. We're back in just a minute. Stay close. DC is daily. DC is daily. DC is daily. It's news, culture, and curiosities. From the district, Tacoma Park, Alexandria, Friendship Heights, Hyattsville, Falls Church, Northeast Washington, DC, in your inbox every weekday afternoon. DC is daily. Sign up at dcs.com slash newsletter. dcs.com slash newsletter. It's the Diane Ream Show Friday News Roundup. I'm Joshua Johnson, sitting in for Diane Ream. We're spending the hour with Naftali Ben-David of the Wall Street Journal, Cheryl Gay Stolberg of the New York Times, and Josh Kraushaar of National Journal. Let's talk politics. There was a debate. A lot of people watched. Kind of interesting. Always newsmaking. Plenty of surprises. I don't even know really where to begin with the de- Cheryl. Where it was we- like the thriller in Manila. Boy, was, <laughs> it was it. great TV. And it's only the first one. Right. So, uh... I think headline from the debate, I do think Hillary Clinton um, won the debate. She did. She The polls are reflecting that. She um, she came out. Uh, she had a difficult first part. Donald Trump kind of had her on the ropes, uh, to use the Thrilla in Manila analogy, <laughs> in the beginning over trade. She came back very strong in the second half, um, particularly when um, he talked to her. He tried to address the question of her stamina. He he said she didn't have stamina, and she said, look, the next time, you know, when he travels all the way around the world and goes to all these countries and negotiates all these peace treaties and, you know, does X, Y, and Z, all the things that I've done, then, you can then talk he can talk stamina. to me about yeah. stamina. And then uh, the moderator, Lester Holt, asked him about his remark about uh, her presidential look, which is code, frankly, for a lot of women. And she immediately seized on that and talked about uh, Donald Trump's assertions about women, uh, calling them fat, calling them ugly. Uh, and then she brought up uh, the beauty queen who has landed her in a teensy bit of trouble, right, Alicia, um, Alicia Machado. Machado, and said that he called this a Miss Universe contestant a pig, and she was Latina, and he called her Miss Housekeeping. And um, I will say she also she had an excellent moment, I did think, when she gave that little shimmy, for those of you who watched the debate, I thought as a woman that was a fascinating moment to me because Donald Trump had unleashed this barrage of attacks. She just gave a little shimmy as a, a female gesture and said, whoa, you know, right, let's right. talk about that. Let's shake and, it off and keep talking. And then she launched right into talk about NATO and nukes in Iran. And I thought the juxtaposition of that really spoke to the fact that this is a woman who can be female, which is has been a question about her. Is she, you know, is she feminine enough? Is she real enough? And can also be tough. But Naftali yeah. Ben-David, let me ask you about that. The whole, a lot of the news narrative this week has been about Donald Trump being on the defensive, that the debate knocked him on his heels and he blamed the moderator, he blamed the microphone, he blamed everything but himself. Is that a fair reading of this debate? Is If, if this debate 
maybe lost him face with the nation, but gained him ground with his core supporters, the people he's counting on to come out and vote for him. Isn't this kind of a win where it counts, potentially? Well, I do think he's under some pressure to expand his core and his base. However, I just... You know, how many times during this campaign have we said, ooh, that was a bad moment for Trump, man. He really lost that debate or he really said something dumb there. And then in the days and weeks that come, his polls either hold steady or they increase. So, and we said uh, that through the whole primary. We did, and he ha- including in debates where he looked like he was on, on the ropes at various times. So I, for one, would be very hesitant about making any predictions about the outcome. And in fact, sometimes, you know, there have been bounces for his opponents. They turn out to be short-lived. So, I would echo that, actually. So, I would echo what Naftali said you can't you can't draw the yeah. you know you can only talk about what happened right now at this moment after the debate well here, here, here here's the problem for for Donald Trump it wasn't the debate which i think he lost on points but i think he could have you know lived to see another day another debate the the problem was he he's exacerbated his problems after the debate by attacking in such personal terms miss universe alicia former miss universe alicia machado and and, and tweeting overnight uh, the, about her how awful she was and trying to make a, a real uh, conspiracy theory out out, out of her not uh, winning or out of, her, out of her issues. So, I mean, there were two goals, I think, that uh, Donald Trump and, and Hillary Clinton had to achieve from, from the debate. Hillary Clinton needs to energize millennials and non, non-white voters. And by talking about, about President Obama, by talking about uh, stop and frisk in the way she did, I think she did accomplish what she needed to do to energize the Democratic base. Donald Trump needs to do a little bit, just a little bit better with, with women. I mean, he needs to inch upwards among especially white working class women. And he did absolutely nothing and probably hurt his cause when all is said and done. Let's get to a few audience comments and calls. Lee emailed us two stories. Trump apparently did business with Cuba during the embargo, referring to that Newsweek exclusive. And the Trump Foundation is apparently not set up to actually receive donations. Very easy to let slip through the cracks with Trump tweeting about beauty queens. Now let's dive in on the phones with Rachel in Orwigsburg, Pennsylvania. Rachel, welcome. Good morning. Hi, what's on your mind? I have a question, and it's brought about a little bit by the uh, small amount of bipartisanship we saw this week between both sides of the aisle, but not between the legislative and executive branches. With any of these candidates, third-party Democratic, Republican, does anyone see peaceful coexistence for the next four years, or are we stuck with four more years of what we've had, which is basically gridlock? I don't see the independents being strong enough to lead. The Republicans don't seem to support their candidate from what we're hearing. And it seems like if the Democrat wins, they're just going to see it as an extension of what we have right now. Good question, Rachel. What do we think about possibly four years of getting stuff done? Cheryl? Um, I think she makes a very wise comment, and I think... um Sad to say, the possibility of getting stuff done is pretty slim. I think that we are so polarized as a nation. When Barack Obama was elected in 2008, many, many people were hopeful at that time that, and he himself campaigned by saying he would bring the country together. He would, you know, he he seemed to be a unifying force. If anything, the country has become more divided since then. You can blame Obama and you can blame the Republicans. There's plenty of blame to go around. But the fact of the matter is today, eight years after President Obama took the Oval Office, we are more divided as a nation. The parties are 
um, dug in. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are a very clear reflection of that. I think two more unalike and opposite candidates uh, one could never see. And it's um, it's upsetting, frankly. Although, a- although part of that might depend on an assumption that we might not have an executive branch and a Congress that are run by the same party. Like, what's the read on how the congressional races are going? Well, if the, if the Hillary Clinton wins the presidency, and, and I'm, I generally share uh, Cheryl's pessimism, I, just there's so much polarization these days, it's hard to see a whole lot getting done. On the other hand, the political incentives have never been more favorable for, for compromise if Hillary Clinton wins, because the Senate's going to be narrowly divided no matter which party uh, takes the majority. And you have a lot of these red state Democrats, folks like Claire McCaskill in Missouri, John Tester, Joe Donnelly in Indiana. If, if Hillary Clinton is going to want to keep or hold the Senate in, 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 in after 2018, if she wants to get things done, she's going to have to really worry about these members' political needs. And that means you can't go too far to the left. She's going to have to find something a little more in, in, in the middle for her own political uh, survival. Not so, but, yeah, I, I think there's a whole other point, which is we're talking about division between parties, but there's enormous division within each of the parties. And I think no matter what the outcome is of the presidential election, the Republican Party is divided at least three ways between sort of the Trump folks, the Tea Party folks, and the more mainstream traditional. Republicans. I think Bernie Sanders made real inroads in the Democratic side. So I think you can have this fragmentary situation where parties are at war within themselves as well as at war between, you know, one with the other. And so I think we're going to end up, no matter what happens, with a very fragmented landscape. And it's not going to be a pretty time in the next two years, I I think, no matter what happens. And and as the caller pointed out correctly, there really is no strong independent third-party candidate. Some people were drawn to Gary Johnson. Well, he practically or did disqualify himself uh, this week after his, you know, what is Aleppo gaff? He didn't know what Aleppo was. And then he was asked um, by Chris Matthews on Hardball to name his, you know, a foreign leader he admired. And any he couldn't come leader. up. Any foreign leader. Pick one. He There's lots of countries out there. He could have said anything. He didn't. And, he, you know, it fell to his vice presidential, his running mate, Bill Weld, the former governor of Massachusetts, to, you know, throw out a name there, Vicente Fox, who was the former president well, and of Bill Mexico. Well, Bill Weld also told, I think it was um, CNN's Dana Bash, that, you know, Gary Johnson just doesn't do pop quizzes well. Well, he doubled you know, down on, on, on his comments. Upon, he tweeted I mean, yesterday that I still don't know a foreign leader that, that I admire. Presumably he's trying to say he doesn't admire any, any, any foreign leaders. I think that was the gist of what he was trying to say. Something but like that, yeah. No one seems to want to win this presidential election. I mean, Gary yeah. Johnson had a real opportunity. Uh, he, he certainly is running against two of the least liked major party presidential nominees in, in recent memory. And he didn't have a – he didn't staff up. He didn't uh, raise money. And, and he didn't uh, really campaign all that much. And now he's making gaffes on national television. However, However, there is the factor of Gary Johnson and Jill Stein siphoning votes from millennials, potentially away from both candidates, and playing this spoiler role, if if you will. And, you know, Hillary Clinton hit the campaign trail with Bernie Sanders this week to try to gain back some of the millennials that went his way. I, I wonder at what point the entire political landscape just has to reckon with the fact that voters my age and younger are dissatisfied with the current state of politics enough that they may not be willing to, you know, to blow up the table in the in the in the strand of some of Donald Trump's most ardent supporters. But they are insistent enough on change that they will say, no, really, I'm going to vote for who I want to vote for. And I don't care what you think. Yeah. Polls of millennials have consistently showed that they are in the no labels crowd. They are open to voting either Democrat or Republican. Their concerns are economic, college debt. Can I get ahead? Will I ever be able to buy a house? 
And in an uncertain economic time, their votes are very much up for grabs. And it's exceedingly important if Hillary Clinton is going to win this race that she bring out the millennial vote. Millennials voted overwhelmingly for Barack Obama. In 2012, they voted, I think, 67 percent for Obama, 30 for Mitt Romney. Um, they were critical in several swing states. What, what Hillary has to do is drive out those millennials who, frankly, are not very enthusiastic about her as they were about Obama and get them to the polls. And this is especially true of minorities and African-Americans. Um, I've spent a lot of time in, in uh, black neighborhoods this week in Philadelphia and also a lot of time in Baltimore. And young black people will tell me that their parents and their grandparents made them go out to vote for Barack Obama. They were like, you've got to vote. You go, you go out there and you're going to vote. I'm going to drag you by your ear and do it. And, you know, if nobody makes them go out and vote for, for Hillary Clinton because African-Americans are a reliable Democratic constituency, that's going to be a problem for her if they stay home. I wonder if also someday we'll be able to look back at the presidency of Barack Obama for that very reason and see that there was something kind of epical about his ascendance that changed the expectations thereafter. Like, I've, I've heard a lot of black voters saying... Well, I don't know who we're going to get fired up about this time. We were real excited about Barack Obama, and now I, just, I, I don't know what, what the discussion and is. And many are sad to see him leave. For That's, sure. I have heard many say they wish he could run for a third term. By the way, speaking of millennial voters and younger voters, if you're listening, or well, if, if you know a younger voter who may not be listening, and young voters, why aren't you listening? We are doing a show next week about what matters to young voters in the election. We'd love some input. Send us a video. Send us a voice memo. Let us know what you are looking for from the candidates, what they would have to do to win your vote. And especially, you know, if you're supporting Gary Johnson or Jill Stein, or if you don't know who to support, or if you are determined not to vote, we would still like to hear from you. Where are you right now in this electoral process? Email us, send us a video or a voice memo to drshow885 at gmail.com, drshow885 at gmail.com, or leave us a voicemail. Here's the number, 202 854 8851. That's 202-854-8851. We would love to hear from you. I'm Joshua Johnson, and you're listening to The Diane Ream Show. Let's continue on the phones now with Lex here in Washington, D.C. Lex, welcome. Hi. I have a question about the Trump Foundation. You mentioned it briefly, and I've heard so much this week about self-dealing or about him using the Trump Foundation to settle some of his own debts. And I was hoping to clear up what exactly happened. It sounds illegal, but no one is talking about it. And I'm, maybe I have misinformation. What exactly happened? Is it illegal? And why aren't people talking about it? Lex, good question. Naftali Ben-David? Well, the allegation, and this has come out through some very good reporting in the Washington Post, is that the Trump Foundation, which is supposed to be a charitable foundation, used some of its money to pay off legal debts incurred by Donald Trump himself or by his businesses. Um, I mean, I'm not going to venture a legal opinion here, but clearly the implication is that that is not permitted and that that's something that the, the Trump Foundation needs to answer for. Now, there is an investigation currently underway by the Attorney General of New York, uh, into the foundation, into whether or not it has the certification that it needs and has conducted itself properly. Uh, the Trump team is quick to point out that the attorney general of New York supports Hillary Clinton. Uh, but nonetheless, this is a, you know, formal, official, you know, criminal probe in, into the Trump Foundation. But we'll see how it plays out. I mean, as with so many other things with Donald Trump, this strikes me as the kind of thing that for any other candidate would be almost fatal. But in his case, certainly his supporters don't seem to be phased by it at all. Let's continue on the phones now with Jack in Plymouth, Michigan. Jack, welcome. 
Hi. I just wanted to talk about um, President Obama and the um, allowing the 9-11 families to sue Saudi Arabia. And I just think that I don't think President Obama is getting enough credit for political nuance here. I think one of the main issues that people haven't seemed to be talking about is what happens when one of the largest uh, global superpowers says to citizens, yes, you are allowed you are allowed to sue other countries now for damages, basically. And what does that open up the United States to? Because the United States has some kind of iffy dealings worldwide, especially when it comes to drone strikes and civilian casualties, etc. So how I don't think he's getting enough credit for those concerns because those can be extremely big deals, especially, and when you're the chief diplomat, that's stuff you have to think about. For sure, Jacket, and I, you know, I mean, that was one of the things that, by the way, we, we discussed the 9-11 bill in great detail yesterday. It was the first hour of our show yesterday. If you want to hear it, you can go to drshow.org. But I don't think President Obama has ever really gotten a lot of political points for his nuance. He's gotten political points for his vision, for being motivational, but the constitutional law scholar in him, I don't think was ever his strongest political point. True, but this, this is a this is a point that seems to me like it should be relatively easy to understand. In other words, if people in Pakistan want to turn around and sue Americans or sue the United States for what they see as drone strikes that may have inadvertently hit civilians, I mean, it just that's just an example. But there's you know dozens of them ar- around the world, and and it was interesting to hear members of Congress after voting to override the veto say, "Look, the administration didn't do a good enough job of explaining to us the potential consequences of this bill," as though it's not the response of members of Congress to read the bill and understand the consequences. It was really a very interesting political dynamic. I think what it was was the administration didn't do a good enough job explaining to voters the consequences of this bill. And so voters did not pressure their lawmakers to vote um, to to not override. Now, that's a tough sell, frankly, in an election year where people are really concerned about the economy to get them thinking about 9-11 and lawsuits, etc. Lots more to talk about in the domestic hour of the Friday News Roundup. We're spending this hour with Naftali Ben-David of The Wall Street Journal, Cheryl Gay-Stolberg of The New York Times, and Josh Kraushaar of The National Journal, and with you. So keep giving us a call, 800-433-8850. Email us, drshow at wamu.org. I'm Joshua Johnson. Glad to be with you. You're listening to The Diane Rehm Show from WAMU and NPR. Back again with a Friday News Roundup. I'm Joshua Johnson sitting in for Diane Rehm. Before we keep going with the news, I should let you know that NPR is following the presidential candidates as they get ready for the remainder of the campaign and for the vice presidential debate this Tuesday. You'll find live coverage on many NPR stations, including most likely your local, along with live online fact checking at NPR.org. Cheryl, let's talk about Charlotte. There are some new details that have emerged about last week's shooting death of Keith Scott that drove so many people into the streets of downtown Charlotte for several nights. What's the latest that we've learned about this? Well, so the latest is that police issued an audio recording in which an officer can be heard saying that Keith Scott, the African-American man who was shot, um, had a gun. 
And the officer could be heard on the, on the audio saying, you know, he saw Scott with a gun. But, of course, that is still just an audio recording. And the video recordings that have been released thus far have not made clear whether or not Keith Scott had a gun. The police in Charlotte say he did have a gun. Keith Scott's family says he did not have a gun. And so this is obviously the critical component to this investigation, and we still don't know what the answer is. It seems to be kind of a crapshoot in a lot of these cases that have come out since, well, particularly since Ferguson, since Michael Brown's death in 2014, of people demanding, show us the video. And then the video comes out, and it may or may not settle the problem. It helps, but it still seems like it's too much of a variable whether or not the video does any real good to calm people down. Right. Well, this is, frankly, the argument for body cameras. And this is why many police departments, including uh, in Baltimore, a city I've covered extensively, um, are moving toward body cameras. And police officers who favor body cameras will tell you that they are good for police and good for bystanders, that, that when a police officer is wearing a body camera, he or she knows that his every movements are being recorded. And so it, that tends to have a de-escalating effect. And when citizens know that officers are wearing body cameras, they may tend to, you know, calm down. And then in the end, when an incident like this happens, the video is released and we can see what happened. Well, in this case, there was one officer who was not wearing a body camera um, and or whose body camera was not turned on. And that's also become an issue in Charlotte. Why was this officer's body camera not turned on? What would we know if it had been? There was also body camera video from another shooting in El Cajon, California, which is near San Diego. What do we know about that? So in that case, there have been protests there, too, and the family of the man who was shot says that he was mentally ill. And this is a serious issue. Um, The Washington Post has been doing some really good work tracking police shootings in this country. It reports that roughly one in four uh, police shootings involve mental illness in some way. So the the question about the way police treat mentally ill people is now bound to be renewed around that shooting in in El Cajon. Um, I believe that the person shot was unarmed in El Cajon. Am I correct there? Yeah, he was armed with, with, with I think, some kind of a device for vaping. He was wandering in the road, and his, his a family member thought that he was unstable and... Yeah, the police say that when they showed up, he took out a device and aimed it in what they called a shooting stance. And then it turned out later it was, as you say, this vaping device, a sort of non, a sort of smokeless cigarette type right. thing. And so the question of his mental stability has been brought up by the family itself, uh, and it does raise a whole other set of questions. What do we make of the uptick in these kinds of, of incidents? I mean, on the one hand, it's probably a good thing for our democracy that we are talking about it more that we are engaged about these things. On the other hand, we're seeing a lot of it. And, I mean, granted, we have the cameras, so we can see a lot of it. But, like, what what do we make of this at this point? Josh? Yeah, it's, it's healthy to have these types of conversations. But in our age of social media, it's much, much too easy to react, sometimes violently, before we know all the facts about these cases. And, you know, you look at the politics but behind uh, the, the, these issues, especially in North Carolina, one of the most pivotal states on the on the electoral map this year. Uh, it, 
it's as, North Carolina is as racially polarized of a state as, as we've seen it. The protests and the, and the violence took place in the heart of downtown Charlotte, as opposed to some of the other uh, riots that took place in, in more of the, the inner city core uh, of, of those cities or, or areas. So this is I mean, I'm, I'm going to be fascinated to see how the politics in North Carolina are going to shift as a result uh, of, of, of the issue in the last couple of weeks. Because what, what I've talked talking to Democratic and Republican pollsters in recent days, the African-American vote is more energized and, and even more overwhelmingly in favor of Democratic candidates. But the white vote, the white suburban vote in particular, is starting to tilt a little bit more towards Republicans in the wake of these incidences. Cheryl? So I think we should be clear about whether or not there is an uptick. I mean, I think we don't know if there's an uptick in police shootings because there aren't really any good long-term data. And civil rights advocates and African-Americans, well, Black Lives Matter folks will tell you that all we, the reason we think there's an uptick or that it appears that there's an uptick is simply because we have all these videos and it's recorded. I'm here to tell you that as a young reporter in the L.A. Times, I covered the aftermath of the Rodney King beating. And so that was more than 20 years ago. These issues have been around for a long time. And what Black Lives Matter activists like DeRay McKesson and others will say is that basically they're just, you know, we now have the evidence to show what's happening and to bring the issue um, to the fore to force uh, police departments and politicians to address it. We may not know if there's an uptick in these kinds of incidents, but it does appear that there was an uptick in murders in the U.S. The FBI released its latest uniform crime statistics, its uniform crime report for this year, and granted, one year does not for a trend make. But from year to year, it looks like at least the the murder rate in some of our biggest cities is up. Do we have any read on why that's increasing or what to make of this, Naftali? We have a little bit of a read on it. I mean, the, the murder rate jumped by 10, I think almost 11 percent uh, in 2015, which is the latest figures that the FBI has. Uh, and it was the biggest increase by far in the last 20 years. Uh, and so there's a couple of big questions that arise. One is, you know, we've had essentially 20 years of declining crime, violent and otherwise. Does this suggest that that trend is about to be reversed? And we're not going to know that for another couple of years, obviously. But what's striking about the figure is that it was driven largely by spikes in murders in a handful of big cities. It wasn't across the board. And perhaps no surprise, a lot of those big cities were the exact ones where there have been tensions between the police and the community. So we're talking about Chicago, we're talking about Cleveland, St. Louis, and it raises questions about what's been called the Ferguson effect. Um, and there's a lot of debate about that. There's a couple of different versions of the Ferguson effect. Some you know, law enforcement people, including FBI Director Jim Comey, maintain that police officers are less likely to get out of their cars and engage in in ways that could help avert violence because they're afraid of being videotaped and getting in trouble. But other people, community leaders, say, look, the community is going to be reluctant to help out the police and engage them if they see that they can't trust them and if they see that they can't rely on them not to act violently. But either way, what's clear, I think, is that this tension between communities and police that these videos are reflecting and maybe exacerbating is being reflected in some of these uh, crime numbers we're seeing. Cheryl? Also, in, in Baltimore, which is one of the cities that had the biggest increase, you can really see... Um, this playing out in a very interesting way. Um, After Freddie Gray was killed, the riots in Baltimore unleashed a lot of looting at drugstores in particular. A lot of drugs were stolen, prescription drugs. Authorities there say that that in turn fueled the drug trade in Baltimore with more drugs on the street, more gang activity, more violence translating into more murders. Baltimore had 
211 homicides in 2014. In 2015, Baltimore had 344. Now, New York has 8.4 million people and had about the same number of homicides in 2015 as Baltimore, which has 660,000 people. So you, the murder rate there is out of control, and it's you can trace it back in a way. It's directly linked to the tensions between police and community, which spawned unrest, which then resulted in this looting of stores and the Ferguson effect that Naftali spoke about, See, now that's all a- these things cycling out to create a drastic uptick in murder. And see, that's another aspect of these numbers. That, and and I'm, I'm sorry, those of you who are listening, I know that's a lot of numbers in a very sorry, short period I'm of time. Sorry. But no, no, no. <laughs> but it's, it's a very sharp uptick in a much smaller community. So per capita, man, yes. maybe that would that's be the more exactly illuminating it. number, is the per capita number exactly. for these cities it's where the same number, like if you just look at, oh, the number of murders went up. But then if you look at the size of the community and the burden they bear, you know, a handful of cities, exactly. particularly cities like Baltimore. If you like think Baltimore. of Baltimore and New York, where Baltimore has less than one-tenth the population of New York, but they've got the same number of murders? The same uptick. Yeah. Not the same uptick. Or the, the same, same number, number. The, the same, same number. absolute number of murders. That's a problem for a city like Baltimore to have so many murders. Well, we would love to hear your perspective on these murder rate numbers, on the police shootings, on politics. Continue, please, to give us a call for the rest of the hour, 800-433-8850. Email us, drshow at wamu.org. Let's get back to some of our audience comments. A lot of comments on politics since we kind of started the show with politics. Tom emailed us. The panel remarked this morning that it'll be hard to get legislation done. Could we get some attention on the congressional? Congressional races that could possibly improve that situation. We hear only and always about the presidential horse race on this show and on this network. Most of us probably cannot even identify who's running in House and Senate contests around the country. We need to hear more. Are there any races in Congress that you think well, are pivotal? I, I just got back from New Hampshire covering probably what will be the bellwether Senate race. Whoever wins the New Hampshire Senate race is likely to to hold the majority come, come November. And Kelly Ayotte is a very well-liked uh, freshman senator running against a very popular governor, Kel- uh, Maggie Hassan. And it's a race that the most fascinating dynamic in that race is Democrats were planning to tie Ayotte to Donald Trump. That was that was the playbook uh, until very, very recently. Now they're realizing that the Mitt Romney playbook, the, the playbook of, of attacking Republicans for cutting entitlements, for cutting spending, uh, defunding Planned Parenthood, the, the traditional 2012 playbook is actually – Doing is more effective in, in attacking the, the Republican nominee. So we're actually seeing a very, very close race that could come down to uh, – it's not going to come down to Trump's performance in the state. It's going to come down to the traditional domestic issues that have long defined uh, congressional politics. The Pennsylvania Senate race is another uh, big bellwether. Pat Toomey, uh, f- freshman senator, used to be the head of the very fiscally conservative club for growth, is, is running against Katie McGinty, uh, uh, for, uh, ran for governor in 2014, a first-time candidate for Senate. Uh, it's, again, a race where the national environment is, is playing a big, big role. And, and Toomey has tried to proclaim his independence from his party. He supported uh, Michael Bloomberg's push for more gun control. He co-sponsored the, the Toomey Mansion bill. But he's struggling to do well with some Trump voters, Trump voters who, who he, ha- he has not really enthusiastically endorsed Donald Trump. And he's actually underperforming with a lot of the most populist Republicans or populist voters in the state. That's Josh Kraushar, political editor at the National Journal. I'm the other Josh, Joshua Johnson, and you're listening to The Diane Rehm Show. Let's continue on the phones now with James here in Washington, D.C. James, welcome. Uh, good morning. What's on your mind, James? I, I just, I just got to say about the police shootings, I'm 66 years old. 
Washingtonian. I had to talk when I was a teenager. The police is ingrained in police culture for whatever reason. They've been killing killing black folks under color authority and getting away with it for, <laughs> before I was even born. And the reason that it's, y'all say it's an uptick, because of social media, the iPhone. I mean, like I said, they've been doing this prior to me being born, usually to get away with because you're going to take the policeman's word. And sometimes they used to have what they call a drop piece. In case they shot somebody accidentally or they shouldn't have, they would have a gun to place in their hand or to drop it to scene. To plant on the scene, yeah. Yeah, James, I thank you for calling in and saying that. I have kind of wondered about that myself, about whether this is a social media effect, and I can attest to what James is saying about having the talk, because I had to have the talk from my elders about if an officer ever pulls you over, it's yes, sir, yes, ma'am, you keep your hands on the wheel at 10 and 2, you tell them before you reach for something, and now, maybe to James's point, it seems like there's an uptick because now the rest of the nation is having to hear this conversation, and it's not just black America talking about it anymore. Let's continue on the phones with Keaton in Clarksville, Arkansas. Keaton, welcome. Hi. Hi, what's uh, on your mind? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a history and political science uh, major at Arkansas Tech, and we have been trying to find out what the, what the general consensus is in regards to the next presidential election. Uh, many people of my generation have expressed a lot of frustration with Hillary Clinton, not because of her p- previous record as first lady or senator of New York, but rather as uh, secretary of state. Her recent actions, you know, Benghazi, uh, the DNC leak, her emails, etc. And um, many have, but many more are expressing uh, frustration at being forced to vote one way or the other and just not voting. Yeah, Keaton, thank you for calling in with that. Talk about that frustration a little bit about feeling like they're forced that they have to choose red or blue and there's no other colors in the rainbow. Well, I think that explains the the interest in the third party candidates and why it's, you know, we've talked about this dynamic a little bit earlier in the show, but why it's a very important one, whether Gary Johnson can attract votes from people who would otherwise vote for Hillary Clinton. And a difference of a couple percentage points could be could make a, a very uh, big impact. And that's why his mistakes uh, are, are consequential. And it's why you've seen Barack Obama and Michelle Obama, for example, on the campaign trail saying, look, a vote for a third party is a vote for Donald Trump. Staying home, that helps Donald Trump. They're trying to convey this message that not, may not resonate 100 percent with younger voters that, you know, that you, if you don't vote for Hillary Clinton, you're essentially voting against her. And it's a very important part of what's going on right now, and it's crucial to the outcome. Yeah, you but know, doesn't that up- just make it worse, though? I mean, telling a, really, telling a young person, the surest way to get a young person to do something you don't want them to do is to tell them not to do it. Isn't that making it worse? So what I wonder is, looking out over the long term, maybe what we'll see out of this election is a viable third party. We've got all these young people out there, like our caller, who are disaffected, who are looking for something different. Maybe the the, the long-term legacy, the lasting legacy of Trump v. Clinton in 2016 will be some kind of viable third party brought to the fore by millennial voters who are disaffected and dissatisfied and sick and tired of being forced to vote for one or the other. Before we end the hour, let's squeeze in one more call from Mandy in Springfield, Illinois. Mandy, welcome. Hi, thank you. My thing is to, it's just not the millennium. Like, I am not a millennium. Um, but, you know, I know 80-year-olds that are very upset about Trump versus Clinton, and they don't want to vote either way. So I don't think the focus should just be on millennium. I have a good another 20, 30 years, 40 years voting. So we need to have something, somebody that steps forward to help the masses. 
vote. You know, it's not just now in today's age, it's not just the millennium. It's everybody is disenfranchised with the Republican Party, with the Democratic Party. Yeah, Mandy, I, I take your point on that, Josh. It seems like there's a lot of, dis- of discontent to go around. Uh, absolutely. And Naftali touched upon this at the beginning of the hour, but there are a lot of internal tensions within both parties. So go even if Hillary Clinton wins the presidency, the fact that the Democratic bench of young talent uh, is so thin uh, going forward is a big red flag for the party. It hurt. I mean, the, their opportunity to win over some uh, of the younger voters uh, to, of winning over millennials is going to be a challenge given their bench. And Republicans have this Huge divide between the populists and, and the business wing of the party, and that's not going away anytime soon either. That's Josh Kraushaar of the National Journal, Cheryl Gay Stolberg of the New York Times, Naftali Ben-David of the Wall Street Journal. Thank you all for spending the hour with us. Again, if you are a younger voter, we would love to hear from you for our show next week about young voters. Email us, drshow885 at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Until we meet again, I'm Joshua Johnson sitting in for Diane Rehm. Thanks for listening. The Diane Reem Show is produced by Sandra Baker, Denise Couture, Rebecca Kaufman, Lisa Dunn, Alexandra Boti, Danielle Knight, Erica R. Hendry, Allison Brody, and Gracie McKenzie. The engineer is Alex Strawinskis.